If you will turn your in your Bibles, please, this morning to Luke's Gospel, the fifth chapter. We're going to look at verses 27 through 39. We read 30 through 39, but we're going to read the verses uh, right before that as well here uh, in uh, Luke's Gospel. Get my own Bible turned to it here. Chapter 5. We read there in verse 27, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And then verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. I'm going to leave it there because we read the other verses and earlier in, our, in the reading. The call of Levi here in, is uh, uh, set forth in our text this morning, verses 27 to 32. This is Matthew, uh, and, it's, uh, and it's joined here to the events that preceded it, Be, with the words here, after this. So, what we had in verses 17 through 26 was the healing of the paralytic. And that healing was met by two reactions, different reactions. First of the Jews, and when I use that term, I want you to understand I'm talking about the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of the people. And when they saw this healing of the paralytic, uh, they, uh, it was because they came to spy out on Jesus so that they might catch him in some lawless deed for which to accuse him. And then we have, on the other hand, that of the people who witnessed the miracle and their response was amazement. The Jews now here are furious in their minds because Jesus declared this paralytic sins to be forgiven, which they regarded as blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins is what they said there in verse 21. The truth is, Jesus baited them by saying your sins are forgiven. And they took the bait and reacted, but first only in their minds. But here's the thing, Jesus knew their thoughts. And so he said to them, what is, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Which takes more authority and power from God? <laughs> hmm? But he said that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. And it's a reference to Daniel chapter 7 when the, the Ancient of Days gave to the Son of Man authority, dominion, and a kingdom that will last forever. And that's referring to Jesus. They, they knew that reference. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to on earth to forgive sins. I say to the paralytic, rise and walk and go home. That's verses 22, 23 and 24, excuse me. So the Jews then couldn't see the obvious. Jesus was God. And he proved this to them by exposing their thoughts. And then he proved it by healing the man, demonstrating God's power to do so. And on top of that, the paralytic immediately picked up his bed and returned to his home, glorifying God in the face of the Jews. And then we have the crowd who observed the miracle. Their response was utter amazement. This term describes a state of blended fear and wonderment. They just oh, took their breath away. The, word, the Greek word there that's used is the source of our English word ecstasy. They were in ecstasy and awe. And notice, they too glorified God and kept speaking out openly. We have seen extraordinary. That Greek word is, means that which is paradoxical and incredible. We have seen extraordinary things today. That's verse 26. So now we come to verse 27, which connects the previous narrative with what follows. And as noted in the last message, Luke's purpose was to expose the opposition that Jesus would face as he marched to the cross. This opposition was due to, to growing conflict between the kingdom of God, or heaven, and the kingdom of Israel on earth as envisioned by the Jews. John's prologue to his gospel succinctly describes the nature of this conflict. Jesus, who created all things, not anything, there's not anything made that Jesus didn't make. He created all things. And then, in the incarnation, he came into his created order, this world. And he did so into the nation, because Mary was of the tribe of, of, uh, of Judah, of the uh, seed of Abraham. So this is the nation which he formed of the de physical descendants of Abraham. He called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, miraculously gave him a son, Isaac, and then from Isaac came Jacob, and from Jacob the twelve tribes of Israel, and so on. So now John puts it very succinctly and simply here. When he came to his own, his own people, they received him not. Isn't that amazing? He's the one who brought that nation into existence, and yet when he came to them, as their Lord and Savior, they said no. Nah, not interested. 
The prophets were clear about this also in Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and we esteemed him not. On the other hand, those who did receive him, the righteous remnant within the nation, who did receive him, who and, and because they believed in his name. This is they recognized his messianic origin, his authority from God, and they saw the reputation that he gained by the demonstration of the fact that he was from God. They believed in his name. And then John says, because of that, God gave them the right to be called or to become the children of God. We, we read that in English and we miss it too. We miss what, what God is trying to tell us there. Children, sons of God, and by the way, that's the term there, sons of God. Sons of God were those who were created as a direct act of God. Not through human parentage, which he's going to make clear too. Isn't that amazing? Adam, the, the first Adam is the only son of God in the human race. The only one. Till Jesus. And now all who believe in Jesus are sons of God. Understand that. God made them. Directly created at the hand of God a people for his name. Wow. The Jews believed that they and they alone were the children of God because they were the descendants of Abraham. John then pronounced who the true sons of God were in verse number 13. These are those who were born not of blood. That is genetic, genetic descent. Physical genetic descent from Abraham. Nor of the will of man. That is, you're not a son of God because you claim to be. It's not your will. Nor of the will of man. It's not what your parents hope. Or your friends or close associates want but of God. He's the only one who can make you a child of God. So Jesus was, re was rejected also because of, of the nature of the kingdom that he came to establish, which differed from that of the Jews. They were expecting a literal political military kingdom established on earth with its capital is Jerusalem with a Jewish Messiah ruling over the rest of the world. They wanted a one world government. 
with their Jewish Messiah ruling from Jerusalem. Let me, let me share something with you. That is the view, that's the kingdom view that has been advanced for years since the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that has developed into what is now known as modern Zionism. You've heard the term. Who are the Zionists? That Zionism was fostered by a very wealthy, in fact, the wealthiest Jewish family on the face of the earth today, the Rothschild. Beware, and don't be deceived. Jesus warned us, don't be deceived. Zionism is not to be confused with Judaism, the religion of the Jews. Zionists are elitists who want to rule the whole world from Jerusalem. A one world government. Is what's happening in Israel today the beginnings of that? Beware. Zionists don't care anything about their people or anybody else, including you. You are dispensable to them in their, in their goal of establishing their own world rule under Satan. It's satanic. Not from God. Now, getting back to the message, Jesus declared that his kingdom was not of this world. In John chapter 18, verse 36, to Pilate, who represented the Roman Empire of the day. Indeed, his kingdom is, was not primarily Jewish either, but would consist of a people from every nation, kingdom citizens, would be a spiritual people called out of the world and conquered by the gospel, according to Peter. And we just heard that at the table this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's, that's us who know, who know Jesus Christ. And what, what's our responsibility? To proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Are you still entrapped in, in the darkness? Satan's darkness? Or have you come into the light of the glory of God and Jesus Christ? See, that's the question. The kingdom expected by the Jewish ruling class and the one that Jesus was introducing are clearly in conflict both as to nature and appearance. Thus, the growing hostility of the Jews toward Jesus as described here by Luke. So now in the text before us, we have the call of Matthew, or Levi, as Luke calls him, but Luke's purpose in this was more 
than focusing on the calling of the last disciple, because it's just addressed in one sentence. As important as that call was, Luke centered on the Jewish response to what transpired after Luke's call. What did Luke do immediately after he was called? That's what Luke here is, is uh, what, uh, what Levi did immediately after his call. That's what Luke here is describing. And what, what, what do we see? The Jews grumbled at his disciples. They're angry. They're making a fuss. Why? Because you guys and Jesus are eating with publicans and sinners. Where's the sin in that? So before we, however, before we take up this text, I want to, I want to just spend a few minutes here to review the Lord's stated reason for coming into this world by His reading here of. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which, which really is setting the whole pace of things through this section. And that's clear back in, in the fourth chapter when he was uh, in the synagogue there at Nazareth. So this, and the two things that I want, want to deal with, because he, he spoke about the year of the Lord's favor, but then he omitted the second part of it, which was the day of vengeance. So notice this, without question here, Jesus' identity as Israel's promised Messiah was fully established in the early days of his ministry. And it's supported by this text in Isaiah chapter 61. The last chapters of 61 deal with the kingdom of God. He chose that text specifically because it deals with the kingdom of God. And he announced that, that that prophecy was now being fulfilled in their hearing. Was being fulfilled in their hearing. That is those of the, in the synagogue there in Nazareth. That's chapter 4 verses 18 through 21. That prophecy ended with the proclamation of the year of the Lord's favor. This year would be a lengthy period of time as compared to the day of vengeance. I think that's the contrast. This day of vengeance will be fulfilled at his second coming. So he left it off. He left that part of the prophecy off because it was for a future time, not for that present hour. In other words, the time of the Lord's favor would extend from His first coming until His second coming when the day of the vengeance of our God would also come. You see that? His first coming inaugurated this extended period of salvation. The word that's used there, the Lord's favor, it's interesting because that word is used in other places in the New Testament and specifically here the Apostle Paul explains it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And he, in his uh, discussion here, cites Isaiah chapter 49 verse 8. 
And notice what he says. For he says, Isaiah say, says, in a favorable time, or the time of the Lord's acceptance, see? The, Lord, the, the year of the Lord's favor in a favorable time. That's the word. It's, it's a time of the Lord's acceptance. He said, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. That's quoting from Isaiah. That's the Lord speaking there as he's quoting from Isaiah. Then based on that, the apostle Paul declared, Behold, now, this in this gospel age, is the favorable time. The time of God's favor, the year of God's favor, the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Listen to that. There is only one day of salvation. This, that's this period of time right here. If Jesus Christ comes back again, we don't know when he's coming. He could come back now. And when he comes back, your hope of salvation is gone forever. Here, as Paul said, now is the day of, <clears throat> of salvation. Now. This time is also illustrated in the book of Acts. There in uh, the 10th chapter of the book of Acts. Cornelius, who was a Gentile God-fearer, was praying and was visited by an angel who assured him that God had accepted him. Same word. That is, heard his prayers. There in the fourth verse of the tenth chapter. Now this was not due to Cornelius' devotion or goodness. God was working in his heart. And this gracious God had a plan to save a people for his name. And thus the angel instructed See, the angel didn't give him the gospel because it's not angel's business to give the gospel out. It's your duty, my duty, to give the gospel out. So the angel instructed him, go send for Peter, who was a Jew, and have him come and tell you the gospel. And the Lord knew that Peter, being a Jew, would be reluctant to do so. Just like the Jews. Eating, they're eating and drinking with public and sinners. Peter acknowledged that. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. You understand why God couldn't use them to evangelize the world? They wouldn't do it. But God, he said, has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's verse 28 of the 10th chapter. Thus the Lord intervened and commanded Peter to go asking no questions. And thus Peter said, when I was sent for, I came without hesitation. Or objection, that is, I came without objection. Verse 29. Cornelius then welcomed Peter. We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded of by the Lord. 
So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. There's that word again. Word acceptable, favor, the year of the Lord's favor, see? Paul's favorable time or day of salvation, this period of the time between Christ's first and second coming, the year of the Lord's favor. And this brings us to ask, how can anyone know whether he has been accepted of the Lord in this era of his favor? How do you know? Jesus clearly defined the terms required of those who would follow him to be his disciple. Sad, but boy, I tell you what, there's an awful lot of people out there who want to claim Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior who, who have, have ignored this simple requirement. What is that? If any one of you any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14.33 You hear that? The tragedy of modern Christianity is that many who profess Christ for salvation want eternal life when they die, but then they also want to live to their own desires as long as they live. Many are deceived to believe that they can have both Jesus, please save me, but then leave me alone to live for myself, for my own pleasure and fulfillment. Uh-uh. Jesus warned, Luke 16, 13, No servant can serve two masters, Christ and self. It's either Jesus is everything or you. You can't have both. You want to live for you? Then Jesus is no part of you. Period. For Jesus said either he will hate the one and love the other. You see, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a radical situation. You love you, you hate Jesus. Period. He love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. I'm devoted to me. Then you're despising Jesus. Again, Luke 9, verses 23 and 20 to 25, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, for whoever would, would save his life will lose it, and who, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Yeah. The clear biblical requirement and evidence for those whom the Lord calls and accepts is that they have turned from self and the world, leaving all to follow Him. Luke shows the reader that J Peter, James, <clears throat> and John, 
left everything and followed him. 5.11 Now in verses 27 and 28 when Jesus calls Matthew, the last of, his, of the twelve to follow, we read, leaving everything and he rose and followed him. Ah, there it is. Now in the passage before us, Luke shows us how Matthew gave evidence that he was truly one of Christ's followers. How did he? How so? This, this is feasting and fasting. <laughs> feasting and fasting. After this, back to verse 27, it says, After this, after Jesus called out the Jews for their failure to see the obvious, Jesus found Levi, Matthew. Levi is his Aramaic name. He was the son of Alphaeus there according to Mark. Levi was sitting at customs. That is a custom booth. Tax booth. Literally in the Greek there, it's a toll buying place. Right there on the sea. Therefore the... Uh, uh, co co commerce that was coming across the lake near the port there of the, of the sea coast. Luke gives us but a brief and succinct statement. Jesus called Levi simply to be following me. That's a present active imperative. He walked by there, looked at Luke, Luke sitting there at his desk and said, come or be following me. Two things must be noted about this brief invitation. First, is that it, this was probably not the first occurrence that Jesus had with Levi. There's probably been a previous contact. As with Peter, James, and John, this was probably not the first time he addressed Peter to, about his desire for him to be his disciple. But uh, we don't find anything about that recorded in the Scripture. But we would assume it did from the brevity of the statement. Which is, by the way, recorded by all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Second, this call to join Jesus on a permanent basis involved no small financial loss. To be a tax collector... And they were, tax collectors were really despised by the Jews. Here's a Jewish tax collector who hated by his own people for collecting taxes. But boy, it was a very lucrative business. And he left it. There was no second thought. He left it. He wasn't counting his pennies. He said no. And left it. However, had Levi refused, and I would say this is an improbability considering the call was of irresistible grace. It's the work of God, not, not a decision on Luke's part. I mean on Levi's part. No one would ever have known him. We, he'd have been forgotten in history. His obedience, however, was accompanied with infinite spiritual gain. 
No one truly follow, who follows Jesus ever loses, even if doing so may cost him his fortune and his life. The gain is eternal. Now the brevity of the call and the response was incidental to what followed. Particularly the Pharisees' critical response to the feast that Levi prepared for his fellow tax collectors. Luke informs the reader that it was a great feast, no small undertaking, and it was attended by a large company. Verse 29, to top it off, Jesus and his disciples were joining themselves with this, these social outcasts, sinners. These Jews never saw themselves as such, even though they were sinners. So why did Levi give this dinner? That's the question. Was it just a farewell dinner? I don't think so. And I think the evidence of that is seen in Jesus' own response to the, to the Jews. I have, not, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Levi wanted them to join him in this new life. He got them together to meet Jesus. It ought to be evident that those who find new life in Jesus Christ then would want the, the others to find him also. Why is it that so many who claim to be Christ's have no desire to share him with others? <clears throat> Second here, Jesus' word to the grumblers was also very brief. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now his reply is unanswerable. You can't argue with this. Especially on the basis of their own admitted premise. Why are you eating and drinking with sinners? It's simple. They need me. I'm the great physician. They need healing from their sin. I didn't come to call you righteous ones to repentance. I came to call them. And so we read there, and I think there's, a, there's kind of an assumption here that uh, they thought themselves to be spiritually healthy. In other words, Jesus is kind of following along with their line of thinking. I didn't come here for you guys. You're, you're well. You're righteous. You don't need me. You don't need my salvation. Ah, but what do we find? Just a few days or weeks before that, when he was preaching his Sermon on the Mount, there in chapter Matthew chapter 5, verses 30 and 31, Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. 
And I'm going to tell you something. The scribes and the Pharisees had a religious life you couldn't even keep up with. If anybody ever got saved on, on, on the, their works, it should be them. But Jesus said, no. Your righteousness better succeed. How could you outperform them? You can't. <laughs> That's where Jesus comes in. He lived a perfect life. And because and if you belong to Him, you have His righteousness, which exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew had something omitted by both Mark and Luke. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. This is Matthew 9.13 and it's citing Hosea 6.6. 6. The Old Covenant focused on sacrifices. Now here's the problem with that. The Jews could, could bring sacrifices all day long without any heart or devotion to God in it. It was a perfunctory duty. Malachi talks about that. God says, I prefer, dis I prefer mercy. What's he talking about? You're criticizing me for wanting to associate with publicans and sinners who need salvation. I'm showing mercy to them. You don't want mercy. You just want perfunctory performance. See, the new covenant focuses on mercy toward sinners. Not the old covenant that lives on sacrifices. The Pharisees own observation justified Jesus. After all, Yahweh declared, I am the Lord, your healer. Exodus 15, 26. If he was the great physician, why was he not, would he not associate with those who needed the physician? So that he might bring them to spiritual healing. The great mission of Jesus was to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came not to call the supposed righteous to repentance, or righteous but sinners. Their guilt was double. Their own disease twofold. They refused to seek either him or his power and remedy. All three evangelists record, record, uh, record Jesus as saying, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Only Luke adds two words to repentance. Calling the reader here to recall the ministry of John the Baptist and his message to the Jews. And he, again, 
Luke is following a prescribed plan to reveal the kingdom of God in his gospel to Gentiles. And, and he records back in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, Luke uh, of uh, uh, John the Baptist's response to those who came to hear him. He said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance. A changed life. A resolve to hate sin and to love righteousness. It's turning from the old to the new. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I'm going to go to heaven because my birth certificate says that I belong to the tribe of Abraham. Uh-uh. But bear fruit in keeping with repentance, see. For I tell you, God is able of these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, you know, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. The day of, the, of God's vengeance is coming. <laughs> the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cast down and thrown into the fire. Is your life bearing good fruit? That's the evidence of repentance. A changed life. A life turned from hating self and sin, loathing the world and despising the things that characterize what the world describes as joy and happiness and fulfillment, to despise those things and follow Jesus alone. Hmm. Yeah. As long so then Jesus answered with a question. And this is a genius tactic. <laughs> Sometimes when we're criticized, the best thing the best way to respond to your critic is just to ask him a question. The, these Pharisees who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, according to Luke 18 and verse 9. However, they had no fruit to evidence their righteousness. No doubt Jesus' words bit them deeply. But also to justify themselves, and then Luke continues, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often. See, those this. And they said to him, ouch! <laughs> okay, let's get it. Let's divert the subject here. <laughs> and the disciples of John fast often. Uh, now we're going to get you because we're going to get you here because you're feasting when you should be fasting. <laughs> they, and notice they bring John in. Why did they bring John in? Just because of, of that term, repentance. Oh, that's what John preached. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, the disciples of John, they fast. You guys don't fast. We Pharisees like John, we, we're together. We, we're with John. We fast. You don't. <laughs> I love that. And here they call John to their side against Jesus and his disciples. This was another attempt of self-justification. Isn't that what sinners do? You catch them and they justify themselves. Always justifying themselves. We are the spiritual ones because we fast and pray often. Unlike you and your disciples. And they're their own judges and would pronounce themselves innocent. After all, did they not just witness Jesus and his disciples feasting with sinners at Levi's banquet? Jesus answered that there with a question. And I said, this is a genius tactic. All believers should learn when they face a critical world to ask questions. Jesus said, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Hmm, that's a that's an interesting question. Huh? When you have a wedding, you're not fasting. Boy, you're happy. You're feasting. You're celebrating. This question also recalls John's observation. The one back in uh, John chapter three, verse twenty-nine. John the Baptist said, "The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete." Ah, see, there's place for both. The joy. Of, that we experience in the feasting and the and the the uh, lament that we experience in the fasting. As long as the bridegroom was with them, no one fasts. However, when the bridegroom leaves, then they will fast. Jesus did not say fasting was wrong, only that the appropriate, only it should be observed at at a time appropriate. And this followed by a parable. And here again, it's interesting. The parable is given when the truth of something is to be withheld from the hearer. Remember that? There in Matthew chapter 13. To you, that is the believing followers of Christ, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, the scribes and the Pharisees, it has not been given. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. I love it. Oh, Jesus spoke to them in parables because he wanted them to put it down to their to childhood simplicity so that they would understand. No, Jesus said he told them in parables so they wouldn't understand. parable again here was address addresses the kingdom of God and Jesus was saying in effect you Pharisees are so attached to the old covenant you can't imagine the kingdom of God coming in and it can't come in until there's a new covenant the old covenant has to go so a new covenant can be established and that's I'm bringing that in and I'm also instituting the new covenant to bring it in and of that you have no part you continue criticism of me 
as God's means to bring you uh, to bring about his will. You will crucify me, but only but will only that will only bring in the new wine to come. The new wine can't be can't be stored in old wineskins. New wine is put into new wineskins. Jesus then made an observation that only Luke again includes. And it's actually a condemnation of the critic. Listen to it. We read this and we we uh, we actually when Jesus said you put new wine into new wine skins, if you put it into the old, when the wine begins to, to ferment, it'll burst the wine skins and spill out, and then you've lost all the wine. No, you put new wine into new wine skins. And then most people read it like this. No one after drinking this new, uh, new wine desires the old, for he will say the, the new is better. Read it. That's not what he said. No one, after drinking old wine, desires the new. For he says the old is good or better. Verse 39. What did that mean? He was saying, in effect, you reject me because you desire the old. And the old cannot, in, cannot abide with the, good, with the new. You do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. John 10, 26. What about you? What about you? Let's pray. Father, what a passage and what a challenge, not only to them, but to us, to examine our own hearts before you. Do we truly believe you? Have we left all to follow you? Do we really want only Jesus? Or do we just want Jesus to help us to fulfill our self-life, what we want, what we desire, and become critical of others because they're not good like us? Oh, Father, I pray, do a work in our hearts, cause us to realize that Jesus is worth it. Even if giving up everything would cost us our lives and our fortunes, we gain eternal life. And Jesus is worth it. He's worth being Lord of everything. And I pray that we might understand that and walk that way even as the disciples who gave up everything and turned to follow Jesus exclusively. Work your will in us. And I pray if there's anybody here this morning who is not saved, who does not belong to you, that the Spirit of God would begin to do that work of bringing them to repentance and to salvation. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.